Father God, we thank you that you do not grow weary and you are not faint. And Lord, that you give strength to the weary and you help these little ones run after you. And God, as we come to your word, we pray that we would uh, pray like David, that we would seek your face, that of all things, Lord, we would seek you in your temple and that we would seek to gaze upon your beauty. So God, we pray that you would lift our eyes to your beauty and your grace and that you would give us focused hearts on pursuing that. Lord, there's so many distractions, and so we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to fix our things on what is eternal. Uh, help these young ones as they go to Friends of Jesus, and help us as well as we remain here for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to Faith, and welcome to our new message series in the uh, epistle of Paul to the Philippians, which uh, we are calling this the Fight for Joy series. Um, there are many uh, ways you could describe this particular book, and we had a difficult time landing on a particular theme. Uh, some would we looked at contagious joy, enduring joy, expanding joy, joy gone viral. But uh, we landed on fight for joy. It doesn't really matter as long as joy's in there somewhere. But since Baltimore is a city, I believe, in great need of joy, we thought fight for joy would be an appropriate title. Uh, Philippians has often been called the epistle of joy. How big is joy in Philippians, well, it's very big. Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke has been considered the Gospel of Joy, and joy is found in the Luke's Gospel 20 times in those 24 chapters. That's about 83% in each chapter we find joy. But in Philippians, it's 450%. There's 18 times this word is used in the midst of four chapters. So it's a really big Emphasis. Paul talks about joy as something that he prays with, something that he encourages people's faith uh, practice to have, something that we can realize in every and any situation. The amazing thing about this letter is that when Paul is so full of joy, he's actually shackled and chained as a common criminal in a Roman prison. Uh, some would say Paul seems to be a happy camper, uh, others would say, well, he's a happy criminal in a Roman prison. Uh, but what is joy? Rick Warren, who says he's not naturally a happy or upbeat, peppy person, used to think that joy meant feeling good, having happy feelings. But he learned that that's not biblical joy. After studying the scriptures, this is what he said. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life, the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right, and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. There's a lot of uh, truth in that definition. But here's another one I crafted from some of my studies that uh, I hope to put some teeth in here for you. Joy is a continuous, defiant, nevertheless hope in Christ. Biblical joy is not based 
within oneself or one's circumstances in life, whether good or bad. Biblical joy exists regardless of whether a person feels happy or sad because biblical joy rests on Jesus Christ alone. He is the good news of great joy that's come into the world. So joy exists because Christ exists. Because Christ exists, joy is never threatened. It can never be diminished. It can't be dismissed. And so Paul can charge believers, as he does later in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Uh, Romans 12, he says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And so these commands of Paul for believers to rejoice and to be joyful in hope reminds us that joy is not something natural to us. Uh, for while joy always exists, we don't often experience it. We don't often access it. Uh, joy is hard to achieve. It is a fight for us. It's not just the fight of the century like Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao or whatever his name is. Pacquiao. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. I think it's Manny Pacquiao. On May the 2nd, the century, the fight of the century. Apparently, it was a very disappointing fight from what I have heard. Uh, but this fight for the joy is uh, the fight of the centuries for all believers, for the faith enduring. How shall we fight for this joy, this continuous, defiant, nevertheless hope in Christ? Well, Paul begins to show us here in uh, Philippians chapter 1. Let's look at this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus." And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the, full, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is, the, this is the word of the Lord. When you get in my position in ministry, you can coast along. This, these were words spoken to me from an aging, retiring pastor uh, who gave these words to me when I was a young church planter. Uh, and he was observing my life, and he was looking at some of the intensity of engagement I was in and trying to plant and establish a, a fresh work. And he, he said, you know, when you get to my position in the ministry, you can just coast along. And I tried to be polite, uh, you know, I kind of smiled at him, but in my heart I said, Jesus, save me from ever being a coaster. 
uh, there is a great temptation in the Christian life to retreat from service, uh, to pull back when things get difficult, to rest on past performance, uh, and to just coast along. And this was also the temptation of the church that Paul planted in Philippi 10 years before he sent this letter. The church of Philippi was the first church in Europe. Uh, Philippi was this strategic city in Macedonia, a Roman colony city along a major trade route uh, that was established by uh, esteemed retired army veterans uh, as, as a gift to them to establish a colony, a Roman colony, there uh, in, in this uh, very diverse population. Uh, this is how Rome expanded their empire one way. Acts 16 tells us that in, in Paul's second missionary journey, that he got a vision one night from a, a man from Macedonia standing and begging him to come to Macedonia, and Paul felt compelled uh, to go. And so he goes and he comes to this river area, and there's a group of women, and one of those women was a woman by the name of Lydia. She was a, uh, a God-fearing, uh, wealthy uh, woman of dealing with purple, which is a very valuable uh, material. And she hears about Jesus Christ and this good news. God changes her heart, and uh, she gets baptized. She's the first convert. He goes into the city of Philippi, and there's a slave girl who's been owned by uh, this oppressive uh, group, and she's prophesying uh, about Paul and Silas, and Paul takes and uh, exercises the demon out of her, and she can no longer tell fortunes. The, the owners get irate, and they arrest. They have Paul and Silas arrested. They're thrown into prison uh, where they're in stocks and chains. They, at night, they start uh, singing praises to God, and they start praying, and the earthquake hits and opens up the cell doors, and their chains are loosed. And the guard in that jail was ready to kill himself because he knew that if these prisoners left, that his life was at stake. And so Paul says, no, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And so the, he gets on his knees and he says, what must I do to be saved? And he, and he takes Paul and the Silas home and he cleans them up. And he and all his household were baptized. And that is how the church of Philippi got started with this very diverse group of a religious wealthy woman, uh, a slave girl, and uh, a, a blue-collar jailer. And so this was 10 years beforehand. And now Paul is, uh, has been uh, writing letters and encouraging uh, their work and their growth, but here now Paul is back in prison uh, somewhere in Rome. It's possible he was at Ephesus, but uh, there is no earthquake. Uh, and the government uh, might kill him this time, and they are struggling. The Philippians are struggling with their faith. Uh, some are feeling ashamed of Paul, uh, that uh, their leader is in prison. Uh, some are falling into complaining and arguing. Some are putting confidence in their, their personal goodness and their religious pedigrees. And uh, overall, the church is losing its gospel edge. And so Paul writes this letter full of joy to encourage them to continue to fight for the joy of this gospel in Philippi, this advancement, to not retreat, to be faithful, uh, to establish and expand this heavenly colony 
uh, this kingdom of heaven on earth there in Philippi to see God's kingdom advance. And in this opening uh, section, he is giving uh, an encouragement uh, to, to fight for the joy of this gospel. And the first call that we find here, the first act that Paul reveals for us is a call to joy-filled prayer. Uh, he prays with joy as he, as he considers uh, the Philippians. And we find out that joy-filled prayer is first thankful prayer, is affectionate prayer, and is love-abounding prayer. And it's, it's important for us to see that, that Paul opens this letter really opening his heart with how he's praying for these beloved uh, believers in Philippi. You know, that's how the church got started. In Acts chapter 16, verse 13, it says, On the Sabbath, Paul, when uh, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. That's where they went there to pray. And all of a sudden, a whole movement of ch a chain of events took place where God got the gospel rooted in that city. The mission of God's church is established by prayer, by the prayer of his people. But the mission of the church is also advanced by prayer. So here we find Paul and Silas, they get arrested, they're in prison, uh, but God gave them a heart full of joy. Uh, we find in Acts that they uh, were honored uh, they were privileged to suffer for this gospel. They're in shackles, and they're praising God, and it says, and they're praying. And so then the earthquake happens, and then the eventual fruit is the, the conversion of the jailer and his family. Well, what we see is that the gospel is not only established by prayer, but the gospel is advanced through prayer. And then here Paul is writing this letter uh, to the Philippians, and the first thing that he brings up in his letter is his prayer to about them. You know, the gospel, the establishment of the mission of a church is also sustained and strengthened through prayer. The history of the expansion of Christ's church is witnessed in the prayers of God's people. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, is prayer the first ministry that we do as believers? Is prayer the first ministry that we do as a church? What if you found out, what if you found out that five minutes of prayer produced a greater productive output than three hours of work or study or research or mental problem solving or any other kind of effort? What if you knew that five minutes of prayer was more productive than three hours of your best physical mental energy? Would that change what you would do? Well, you know, scriptures tell us in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Isaiah 30. Isaiah, Zechariah says, Not by might not, or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. Psalm 20 says, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I confess that I have to fight a heart of unbelief. When I feel behind, let's say for an example, when I feel behind in sermon preparation, <laughs> and I feel that I haven't done the kind of research and thinking and studying that I feel is necessary to have a good sermon, 
My temptation is to forego prayer and to begin working. And I have to be very intentional and to say, stop. <laughs> no, I will go to prayer. Uh, by God's grace, you know, I was in that position this week. And I said, okay, for the next 15 minutes, I will give myself to prayer. And so I came in the sanctuary and I started to pray. And the 15 minutes turned into 30 to 45 minutes and I will tell you, that was the best thing that I've done in the preparation for this sermon. Uh, for it is in that time, alone with God in prayer, that he transforms the substance and the principles of this text into the practice and the living experience of this text. In prayer, God moved me beyond an academic parsing of the text to a personal application of the text. God was exposing my weaknesses and my sins, but he was also loving me in the good news that it's not about me, it's not about my performance, but in dependency on Christ, God delights to use even a weak vessel as an object of his mercy to encourage other faith strugglers. And so we see that prayer has to really be something that we discipline ourselves to do because we tend to depend on ourselves. But what we see here is uh, the first thing that he gives himself to pray is, is thanksgiving. I thank my God every in all remembrance of you. It's interesting. You know, if you read through Philippians, you'll see that Paul brings up all kinds of issues and problems that could have been the very front burners of his letter. Uh, there were those that were arguing and complaining. There was disunity uh, that he was correcting. Uh, there, were, uh, there were religious leaders who were uh, elevating their, their, their good deeds above, above grace. Uh, there were all kinds of problems in Philippi that he could have surfaced, and, and he could have got right into the issues right away, but he, he, he resisted that. And he said, no. I'm going to thank God for what I see him doing in this church. And so he spends his time thanking God. You know, the scriptures tell us, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Thanksgiving is an expression of faith that God is a good God, that he is in control, and that he is doing good things. And even though we can't see what he's doing, even though our lives seem to be just in the pits of, of, of hardship. Regardless of all of that, Jesus is reigning, and Jesus is working, and Jesus loves you, and you can find at least one thing. You know, they say when you correct your children, for every correction that you give to your children, you should give 10 uh, applauses or 10 encouragements of things that they're doing. That's a hard thing to do as a parent. <laughs> but I think about Thanksgiving, you know, before we jump into the, the prayer requests that we do, why don't we just think of pausing and saying, let's just, you know, where do we, let's do a God hunt. Where do we see God working? What can we thank him for? I would encourage any leader here, covenant group leaders, community group leader, or committee leader, whatever ministry leader, the next time you get together, just take a pause before you start addressing problems and just say, hey, where do we see God working? What can we thank him for before we engage in the problem solving? I think it'll be transformative. But what does he 
pray for after he gives thanksgiving. He says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Uh, the confidence he has and the thanksgiving that he has isn't based upon their performance or on Paul's ministry. It's based upon the assurance that Christ is at work and that he who began, who started something, will finish it. Uh, we find in Hebrews that Jesus is considered the author, the originator, and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. And so we are saved by faith through grace alone. We are sustained by faith through grace alone. And we are, we are completed. And it's all a work of God's grace from the beginning uh, to the end. What, is, uh, what happened this past Thursday? Does anybody know what happened this past Thursday? Or what is celebrated on the, in the church calendar this past Thursday? Anybody here? You know, Presbyterians need to get on the... Get, get with the... Okay, so Thursday was actually the day of ascension. It's celebrated in many church calendars. You know, we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ. We celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Christ. But 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead... In Acts 1, he raises visibly before his disciples into heaven. And the angels, you know, come and they say, what do you stand here looking for? The same Jesus who you saw go up into heaven will come down. Well, where did Jesus go? Well, Jesus went to assume his throne on high. He went to reign over all the universe where he is reigning presently. And soon afterwards, he sends his Holy Spirit uh, to indwell believers, to indwell his church. And Jesus said, if I don't go away, the counselor won't come. It's good for you that I go away so that I can send the counselor, the Holy Spirit. He says, you're going to do greater things than I have done because he's going to multiply his presence throughout all the believers in all the church in all of the world. And that's what has happened. Jesus is directing his kingdom right now. He is in charge. He is the general. One of the things I like, uh, Jerry, Jerry Souter, uh, did you feel like a little bit of a military force when he kind of got up here? His dad was a military officer, and I could just feel that he was, you know, he was resembling that charge. But Jesus is in charge. He is in, he is in command. And when he begins something, he will complete it. And there's a great assurance that we find in Paul's words here. One of the great gifts that we experienced at Faith in the last week was uh, a woman by the name of Gloria Vincent. Uh, he used to be part of this church about 20 years ago. Uh, and Gloria stopped by our uh, office and she just wanted to give thanks. Gloria uh, lived on Springfield Avenue when Marie and I were living there as well. And Gloria, when uh, she was a little girl, her father abandoned her, and then uh, she was uh, sexually molested and assaulted by um, a cousin, a relative, and that sexual trauma uh, moved her into uh, a life of drug addiction and then prostitution. And for 20 years, uh, Gloria was enslaved. Uh, she was ministered to by this church. The, her son, James, was, was uh, uh, one of the kids that was played on the PLYP sports leagues. We had basketball, we had bas uh, uh, football, we had uh, 
baseball, how we had soccer, and he was part of that. And through that ministry of, of, of plan, he was then enfolded into uh, the ministry, and then she came along with him. And so this church embraced Gloria, and we kind of came alongside of her, and we had some social workers that were part of uh, providing case support for her, and they went to court for her, and and then uh, she was discipled by some of our women, and then she was actually brought into one of our uh, women's homes. Uh, Joan Nelson, uh, Patty Prasada Rao received uh, Gloria into uh, their home. But Gloria had a hard time just remaining clean, and so we saw just the very painful struggle of her trying to really remove herself. And we really kind of lost touch with her, not really knowing what had happened. But she came last week. And she just came here, said, I wanted to come back to give thanks from where my help came from. And Gloria has been clean for the last four years. Uh, she has an amazing testimony of God's redemptive work. And, you know, the thing that I, I think about is this verse, that he who began a good work will complete it. No matter how far you, have, you think you've gone, you have, you're never too far from the reach of God's grace. And uh, it's such a beautiful picture of God's uh, work in her. She, she said, uh, I came from the pits of hell, but he brought me out of it. Uh, and she said that God protected and preserved her. She says, I'm healthy as an ox, my doctor told me. By God's grace and mercy, and I'm so grateful. She, she says she wants to open an outreach center, a uh, shelter, I didn't clean you up just to have you sit around and do nothing, she said. And she says, I know I have the power. I am grateful. What a beautiful picture of God's redemptive, pursuing grace in her life. And so Paul knows that when he looks at these messed up Philippians, that regardless how messed up they are, God's got a hold of them and he will complete it. And so he prays with thanksgiving, but he also prays with affectionate prayer. Uh, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. And he says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And that word actually literally means I yearn for you with the bowels of Jesus Christ. That doesn't necessarily say, you know, the intestines and the heart and the liver and the lungs. But in the Greeks, uh, they believed that the seat of the emotions and the affections were right in the heart, in the center of a person. And Paul was saying, I yearn for you with the very compassion. My heart beats and throbs with the heart of Christ for you. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was uh, a chief theologian in the Great Spiritual Awakening in the 1730s, uh, said, he who has no religious affection is in a state of spiritual death and is wholly destitute of the powerful, quickening, saving influence of the Spirit upon God on his heart. And he said that the religion that God or the faith that God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless wishes rising, raising us but a little above a state of indifference. God in his word greatly insists upon it that we be good in earnest, fervent in spirit and our hearts vigorously gauged in faith be fervent in spirit serving the lord is the charge and so we're encouraged that to enter into those affections you know we we think about uh that and i i think wow do i as one 
believer, as a pastor, do I have those affections for you all? <laughs> and I have to say, confess to you, I mean, sometimes I hope I do. I, I, wanna, I want that, but I can tell you that I just, I have a long ways to go uh, to carry that level of affection. And the question is, you probably do too. Uh, you know, some people say, I like Jesus, but I just don't like his church. You know, I like Jesus, but I don't like Christians. Uh, Christians are messed up people. We're all messed up. But how do you grow in your affections? How do you grow in that heart, that heart connection? I think that each of us have to grow in understanding God's affections for us ourselves. Uh, and, you know, one of the interesting things is that the high priest, uh, Aaron and the high priest, they would wear this ephod over their chest, and the, it was this filigree of gold, and there were 12 precious stones on, that, on, the, chest, on the chest plate. And those 12 stones were representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The names of those tribes were placed on the heart of the high priest, close to of the heart. And it really was a, a symbol of how close God's people are to him. And uh, we find in Isaiah chapter 42 uh, or 49 that can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. There is, a, there is this intimate, uh, passionate affection that God has for his people like a mother with a baby. Uh, and, and Paul even talks about himself as a mother to uh, the Thessalonians. He says, we, were, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you become so dear to us. Uh, this past week, I got, a, I got an email from a pastor, Joe Novenson, who is the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in uh, Lookout, or Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church in uh, Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And he asked if we could visit a friend of his, uh, a professor from Covenant College who was at Hopkins in surgery. Uh, and uh, when I got this email, it said it was like 4.59 a.m., which I, and then I thought maybe it was an hour later, for, or an hour earlier for him. And I asked him in the email, I said, we can fully take care of this. Uh, he said, how much sleep did you get last night? <laughs> and I asked him, I said, did you hear God's songs last night. I don't know why I said that, but I just know that for pastors and for other leaders, a lot of times we wake up in the middle of the night and we, we feel burdened for things. Um, and so he wrote me back and he said, he said, uh, well, I tell the master that he, uh, I tell the master that he gives sleep to those whom he loves. <laughs> I know that Christ, uh, in Christ he loves me, so I guess I got what he knows I need. And he says, your words, did you hear his songs bring tears of thanks? Do you realize that you have a God who sings songs over you? You know, Psalm 42.8 says this, By day the Lord directs his love. By night, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And as uh, Zephaniah 3.17 talks about the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Do you hear 
his songs at night. Do you hear them? So this morning I was, you know, I didn't really want to get up. Uh, and I was listening to uh, the birds. You know, the birds, they, you can hear them chirping, singing. I said, what are those birds singing this morning? And so uh, I was saying, what, what song is that? And then uh, I was hearing the words that the birds were singing. Uh, I don't worry. I don't fret. Jesus never failed me yet. That's a, that's a bird interpretation uh, from a Presbyterian pastor. Anyhow, maybe it's not that great of a song. You know, birds have very small brains. But there's still true truth there, isn't it? The thing is, is that God is singing his songs in many different ways to us. He sings his songs of love. He delights in us. And as you enter into that delight, as you experience that love, you will grow your heart in the things that Christ loves. And you will love what he loves. But finally, we see love abounding prayer. And so Paul prays. You know, we see that he has talked about the, um, the manner of his prayer, how he prays. He prays with thanksgiving. He prays with affection. But here he moves into the matter of his prayer, what he prays for. And what he prays for is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. When you start thinking about what are the first prayer requests that we might have as we think about people, a lot of times uh, we go, if a person's in serious pain, you know, health issues, we go to pray for their health. Uh, or if there's a, a tragedy or that there's employment needs. My son, uh, Calvin, uh, his job was terminated in Chattanooga. He moved to Seattle. He's been there for five months looking for work. And, and uh, it's somewhat agonizing. You just say, Jesus, give him a job. Give my son a job. You know, you just, and I really, that, I have to confess to you, that's my first, uh, it's been my primary prayer for my son over the course of these five months. He did get a job. He, this was, he went back to work this week, but I can only imagine the difficulty. But when Paul looks out at the struggling church in Philippi, the very first thing he prays for is that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. What? Wow, that's like... So I think that we kind of have to... S- enter into what's the bigger need you know uh what are we looking to see happen in the world what is god's primary prayer request and as we think about pen lucy as we think about baltimore are we praying that people would come to see the love of god and that their love would abound more and more with insight and discernment that they could be uh experienced the 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 entrance into the kingdom of God and to, uh, to bring glory to him. Uh, this, this past um, month, we've seen various articles on Baltimore, and, and one of those articles was, was about Sandtown. We have a sister church, new song there that's been, actually it was five, uh, five members of our church back in 1987 uh, that left here to help plant New Song uh, Community Church. And uh, we've been partners with them in Sandtown. It's been a hard community. But we've watched over the course of uh, decades uh, 
attempts to bring renewal to one of the hardest communities in our city. And uh, James Rouse, uh, who built Columbia, invested millions of dollars in Nehemiah Project Enterprise Foundation. There were $100 million uh, that were into uh, Sandtown to help bring development. And as they looked at it over the course of 25 years, they recognized that in so many ways uh, that yielded little sustaining fruit. And uh, you can see uh, this chart, where was that chart, uh, that kind of shows uh, you know, just, just the painful uh, history. And there's a, a man by the name of Elder Harris who uh, works with New Songy, and he also is the director of Newborn uh, Ministries, who's been living in, in Sandtown for many, many, many years. And uh, he's a friend, and I, uh, this is one of the things that he said. He, in a meeting, he, he saw uh, Rouse and the Nehemiah Project Enterprise Foundation come in with good intentions, wanting to help that community. Uh, but he said, the people tended to just watch and, and watch these things happen and not really be part of what was happening. And he says, it's one thing to build houses. It's another thing to rebuild people. It's really a spiritual issue, is it not? And, you know, government has limitations to really address all those hard things. When Paul prays, he prays that people's love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And so, church, you have this capacity. You have this, these gifts. You have been given this stewardship of valuable kingdom resources and, and intelligence and discernment. And so our prayer is that God use us where we are in our families, in our communities, in our city uh, to be a place of renewal. And where does it begin? It begins with prayer. Joy-filled prayer that's thankful, affectionate, and love abounding. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're grateful that you give us uh, these words of Paul to guide and direct our hearts concerning uh, how to pray, how to fight for joy in our prayers, how to be a thankful people, how to grow in our affections that, of Christ, and Lord, how to grow in, in love more and more with discernment. God, we pray that you would uh, take each of us, you know where each of us are in our present lives, in our present struggles, in our present losses. God, would uh, you fill our hearts with the reality that we are a beloved people, that suffering uh, lasts for a season, uh, but joy comes in the morning. So, God, we commit ourselves to you. Use us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.